It was about six months ago to the date that a massive war broke out between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Perhaps you can remember the headlines from the first days and weeks of this conflict. I can remember very troubling images, seeing the civilian death rate rise, seeing people displaced from their families and their homes. I I can remember being so angry at the leaders of these countries, even though I, I really have no idea the the complexities that, that, that are going on over there. But I can remember being so angry. Do, do they understand what they're doing to these people? Our own brothers and sisters in churches being destroyed. Very sad scenario. But over the course of days and weeks, the conflict overseas began to fade into the noise of the news cycle. I began to not think so much about what was going on. I I joined so many in our country, and maybe giving the conflict in Eastern Europe a a thought on occasion, but, but perhaps it was just until the last week or two that I really started thinking about it again as these stories began rising to the top of the news feed. But give it a few days or weeks, and I'll probably forget again. I mean, we live in a place that allows us to be forgetful of such things that go on all around the world. Frankly, it's often we only think about these things when gas prices go up. Because we live in relative ease and safety. And in many ways, that is a great blessing to us. There are few of us who know what it is to fall asleep to the sound of gunfire. There are few of us who may be concerned with our lunch today, but we're not concerned that we won't get it. We are blessed with relative safety and Security, But those advantages come with some disadvantages, too. One of the advantages is that we might actually have a better way to relate to passages like the one we find in Amos 6 this morning. We are people who are largely at ease and are safe, able to tune out so many of the great atrocities that happen all over the globe. And in some ways, this is a blessing. We're grateful for it. But perhaps it makes warnings like these that we come across today even more potent. At at least it, it should. Well, our text this morning in Amos 6 falls right in the middle of the book of Amos. And to catch you up, it hasn't been going well. Amos has been preaching about this exile to come, this great judgment, particularly speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. But the surrounding nations will also come into judgment because of their disobedience to God and His law. And then surprisingly, in our text this morning, he wraps in the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah as well, to these same warnings. 
They have fallen into ease and safety. And what seems to be a blessing to them has actually become a curse, according to Amos. So as we look at this text this morning, I want to start by considering a nation untouchable. A nation untouchable. If you look at the first verse, it begins with this word, woe. A word that we come into contact with throughout the prophetic literature. And it generally sets up a grievous or threatening proclamation. That is certainly the case here. And Amos names those who are in his aim, those who are at ease in Zion, and those who feel secure in Samaria. Now at this point in history, the tribes of Israel uh, that were united under King David have since been divided into north and south. And if we follow the history of the northern kingdom especially and follow their kings, we see that since the dividing of the kingdom, rarely does anything good happen in the northern kingdom. We find idolatry. We find kings that consistently lead their people into sin. And as Amos calls out Samaria, he's calling out the capital of the northern kingdom, calling out those in Israel. But he also calls those who are at ease in Zion, speaking of the southern kingdom, which is a little bit more of a surprise. At this point in history, the north and the south were experiencing fairly uh, times of, of, of peace and prosperity. Many of those surrounding nations who had caused them so much trouble were busy in their own conflicts, taking care of, of other nations. And, and so Israel and Judah alike are allowed to relax a little bit. They're not working to secure their borders so much. They're not at war. And with lack of war comes prosperity. War is expensive. And so these nations are enjoying some of the prosperity that they have, especially those who are in leadership in these nations. The uh, prophet calls out King Jeroboam of the north elsewhere, King Uzziah in the south, and, and all those around them that would be part of the ruling and upper class. Or as Amos says in our passage, the notable men of the first of the nations. They are rich, they are at peace, and they are the chosen people of God. What could go wrong? I mean, they seem to be set up fairly well. What do they have to worry about? Well, if you're a fan of suspense movies and horror movies, you know that the person most secure is the person who usually has the most to worry about. And that's certainly the case here. In fact, Amos will include a play on words that bookend this whole section of Scripture saying, oh, you the first among the nations? Well, you'll be the first to go into exile. And Amos calls out to these leaders who are sitting pretty at ease and secure because of their wealth and power. And he says to them, let's, let's take a little tour. Let's do some geography. And says, he says, take a look to the east for a moment. Consider Kalna. This great stronghold who at 
one time was considered to be the political center of the known world. Now look west from there, just north of Israel, to Hamath, or or Hamath the Great, as it is called. And now turn and look south, down to the land of the Philistines, and consider that great kingdom of Gath. If they were to look west, they would just see water. But in every other direction, the prophet says, look around. Look at great kingdoms that were. Interestingly enough, these are all places that had been overcome by enemy nations, particularly the Assyrians, which will be the nation which will come and take the northern kingdom into exile. It would be like coming to the heads of state in our own country and doing a bit of a geography and history lesson. Consider the Mongol Empire, once holding 25% of the world's population. When was the last time you heard about it? They were taken out by plague and Russians. Speaking of the Russians, think about the great Russian empire. Taken down by a little revolution. Or one that has been in our news cycle recently, the great and mighty British empire. A country whose colonies once encompassed 20, 22% of the world's landmass until World War II, when their demise began. The Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the, the Persian Empire, all empires that were too big to fail, but are now the stuff of high school textbooks. At, at least I hope they're the stuff of high school textbooks. Amos says, do you think you're any better off than any of these nations? Your day is coming. A day which he calls the day of disaster, a phrase that Amos uses to speak of the great day of the Lord will God, when God will come upon the nations with justice and righteousness. A day we find elsewhere in the prophecy that Israel is actually looking forward to. They think they're going to be on the right side of history. But Amos says, this day will not be light for you. This day will be darkness. And he uses this interesting phrase in verse 3. He says, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Now the the Hebrew here is, is difficult to translate, but essentially... What he's saying is you assume judgment isn't coming for you. But in the very act of assuming, you are bringing judgment near. As one commentator explains, the leaders of the north are directly responsible for precipitating and accelerating the very misfortune that they claim will never overtake them. So we see this nation assumes to be untouchable. But God has them directly in their crosshairs. But the question for us is, is why? Why is God so angry? I mean, these are the people of God, right? The people of promise. Those who God took by the hand and brought out of Egypt, out of exile. Why would God now be threatening to send them right back to where they came from? Well, if we consider... 
a nation untouchable, the prophet shows us the reason why God is so angry as we consider a nation ungenerous. As we move to the next section of the passage, we get our second woe. This time the prophet addresses them not by location, but by their behavior and lifestyle, and, and he goes straight Robin Leach on them to do it. Or cribs, for those of you who aren't familiar with Robin Leach. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Their ease has caused them to be extremely relaxed. The prophet is painting a vibrant picture of this, not only taking extended naps, but doing so on opulent beds. Now, beds of ivory might not mean much to us, but uh, think like sleep numbers and the, the ones that have the two zones. Like we're talking really, really nice beds. If you own a sleep number, listen up. <laughs> These are beds made out of the finest of materials, and they are availing of themselves of them frequently. But not only rest, they are eating well also. Lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. This doesn't sound so bad, but this isn't just any stall. In particular, this is the Hebrew word that is used to speak of those stalls which calves would be put in to be fattened. They are partaking of the fattened calf constantly. They are feasting seemingly daily. If you'll recall the parable of the prodigal son, the father has the fattened calf killed to celebrate the return of his son because it's such a unique and special occasion. Well, the fattened calf is being brought out frequently for these folks as they sit in ease. Amos then ridicules their musical abilities. This placement seems a bit Strange, but it would seem as though they were writing songs and compared, comparing themselves and the songs to the skillfulness and grandeur of David himself. I get the picture of arrogant, overfed, overwined, and overconfident men singing their own praises instead of those praises which David sang to his God. I mean, look what they had built for themselves. I suppose they seem in their own eyes praiseworthy. And the bowls of wine probably didn't hurt the songwriting. Amos's images here is it has a double meaning to it. One, he speaks about the amount that they are imbibing in, not just cups of wine, but, but bowls of wine. But this is a specific bowl, one used for religious ceremonies, as if they are baptizing their gluttony as a blessing from God. And to further the religious imagery, they anoint themselves, Amos says, with the finest of oils, the finest of perfumes, sparing no expense for their own comfort and leisure. So what's the problem here? I mean, we do tend to hate people with more money than we have, but it's generally not because we think it's sinful, it's generally because we're jealous. But is the problem here really their amount of wealth? 
is God bringing about judgment because they are rich? I mean, certainly the scriptures speak of the foolishness of money and the dangers that wealth can bring about, but riches themselves are not sinful according to the scriptures. In fact, if you think about all these categories, rest, rich food, joyous singing, plentiful wine, fine oils, they can be found elsewhere in Scripture to speak of God's blessing. That these are good things that come from God. So what's going on here? Well, it seems Israel is taking these as indicators of their blessedness. And these things are blessings from God. Riches themselves are not the problem here. The problem is what they do with these riches, or, or perhaps more accurately, what they refuse to do with their riches. You see, God is not mad because they are wealthy. God is mad because they presume upon their wealth as strength and security, all while ignoring those in the streets who are going hungry. This is a constant refrain if you read through Amos. And really all the prophets, time and time again, they speak out against Israel and its leaders for living lifestyles of the rich and the famous, all while injustice runs rampant. The poor go hungry, the sick die without beds, the destitute sing songs of mourning, all while the blessed throw parties. Here's a few examples from Amos. In chapter 2, the Lord says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke their punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Chapter 4, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, and who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Living a life of luxury, fine wine and good food, while people near them go hungry. Chapter 5, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you who have built houses of hewn stone, You shall not dwell on them. You who have planted pleasant vineyards, you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous and turn aside the needy in the gates. He's painting this picture of these folks who are building beautiful homes for themselves, vineyards, while they're homeless at their gates. The list goes on and on. And on. See, God has always had a heart for the broken. God has always had a heart for the needy, the poor, the oppressed, and the stranger. And when God's people don't share in this heart of compassion, they prove themselves to be very far from the God that they claim to serve. And there is coming a day, Amos says, when those drunken songs you sing will be turned to lamentations. And those feasts that you partake in night after night will be made like funerals. Times for lament. 
All because you did not use the very blessings that God bestowed upon you to bless those in the most of need. One of the realities that is so terrifying about passages like this in the Old Testament is is Jesus seems to continue this logic. Calling out those who revel in their wealth while ignoring the needs around them. And not only that, but the New Testament will show us that this exile that Israel will enter into us is for us a picture of eternal punishment. The parable that we read this morning from Luke sets this image up. We have this rich man clothed in fine linen and purple. He is very wealthy. And then a poor man will just take the scraps from his table, anything that falls off. A table where the man ate sumptuously every day. We find that they both die. The poor man goes to Abraham's side. The rich man goes to Hades. And the rich man calls out to Father Abraham, please have mercy. And Abraham's response was, you had your blessing on earth. And, And that was it. The rich man pleads, please at least send someone to warn my brothers of this eternal punishment that waits. And Abraham replies, they have Moses, they have Amos, they have the prophets. They will warn them. He continues, no, 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 send someone from the dead. That will convince them. Abraham says, even if someone was raised from the dead and went to them, they wouldn't listen. Because they didn't listen to Amos. (laughs) They didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to the prophets. In fact, when the early church and to the medieval church began laying out weekly readings for the church, they lined up these two readings. This reading in Amos 6 and this parable. Because this parable explains to us what's going on, this picture that is put before us in Amos 6. These rulers who were not troubled by the things that trouble God. They were not enraged by the things that enrage God as they were required to do. He called upon them to be angry for justice and angry for righteousness. And that this righteous anger would be played out by care for those who experience injustice. The oppressed, the sick, the poor, the lame, the blind, and the needy. But they were far more concerned about their own security, their own safety, their own ease. God is not anti-money. He is not anti-worldly blessing. He is not anti-resource, but he clearly condemns time And time again, those who trust in them for their safety, those who trust in them for their security at the expense of others. And a sure sign that we trust in our own assets is how we use them and how worked up we get when those resources are threatened. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what works you up? 
What, what gets you angry? What causes your blood pressure to rise? Is it the things that God is angry about? The things that he is concerned about? Unrighteousness and injustice? Or are we most bent out of shape by things that affect our bottom line? Inflationary spending. Rising interest rates. The coming recession. The dip in the housing market. We can often understand where we put our trust, where our heart is, by the things that ruin our day. So we'll go ahead and take the offering now. I mean, if you're, if you're triggered these, by these things this morning, good, I am too. But maybe that's a good sign. I mean, the, the worst we could do is, is to hear these words from the prophet, to hear the words of Jesus and say, I'm safe. It's all good. It's all good. God's law should shake us. It should press on our nerves. And I think there is hope for those of us who are troubled by these things. Even if that troubledness starts with anger towards me for bringing it up. We, we can work with that. Because along with the condemning refrain of the prophet concerning care for the poor is an even more common refrain. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Re- repent. Amos even sometimes seems to speak out of both sides of his mouth. He'll say, it's too late for you. Repent. (laughs) For those who turn to him, he will relent from disaster. He grants grace to those who come to him in humility. And this day, one has come to us by his spirit from the dead. And he calls us. As the psalm we sang this morning reminds us, from putting our trust in princes and wealth and things of this world which cannot save us, and to put our trust in Him. For it is in Him there is security. You see, this this gospel of forgiveness in Christ has always been available for misers like me, for misers like you. People who fall at the feet of the trappings of this life. But Jesus offers us a better way. A way of forgiveness and grace. A way where we no longer have to worry about tomorrow. Securing our own kingdom. But a way in which Jesus comes to us and is pleased to give us his kingdom. You could drop your wallet and checkbook in the diaconate fund today. And that would probably be good for you. There's some good men here that would put that money to good work. But salvation from from judgment will not come by you giving away your wealth. It's too late for you. It only comes by receiving. Receiving that which your wealth could never buy in the first place. Christ for you. And all the benefits of his kingdom. There is no security in wealth because wealth can't buy what we need anyway. But there once was a good king, a very rich king, an owner 
of a cattle on a thousand hills. He was righteous and good, and he had concern for the poor. He sat deservingly on the throne of heaven, but for our sake, he who was very rich looked upon our poverty and became poor for us. Not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of low estate. Taking on our great debt and carrying it to the cross. He who was rich became poor for us. Became poor for us who are poor in spirit, poor in virtue, poor in obedience, morally bankrupt, ethically destitute. He comes to those who foolishly trust in their own wealth, in their own strength, in their own status. And he sets aside his wealth, his strength, and his status that we who are poor might gain everything. As Martin Luther once wrote, God took his son and sent him into our mire, sin, and misery, and poured forth the entire storehouse of his mercy, that we might boast in all his goodness as though it were our own. He made himself a beloved father. He gave us his son poured out his great treasure most generously and sank all our sins and filth in the vast sea of his great goodness. It was said that Martin Luther on his deathbed had a piece of parchment in his pocket with a few words written on it. We are all beggars. This is true. For Luther knew that this Christian life is one of begging constantly begging God for mercy as we daily come to grips with our own sin and our own misery. We come and we call on Him for grace and forgiveness, and He gives it. He gives it this day. The one who became poor for us gives us His grace, and He drowns our greed and our miserly Spirits and attitudes in the waters of our baptism. Nailing them to the cross. And he does it afresh today as we call upon him who have not considered the poorest among us. And we come for forgiveness. And as we have heard from the last few weeks on the fruits of the Spirit, that he is creating in us generous hearts slowly. But it is rooted in us understanding that we are poor. That we have great need. And because we have been given so much, we might freely give of all that we have for the sake of others in Christ. May God, in Christ, by his Spirit, once again turn us to faith and repentance. And give us all that we need to sustain us in this faith. And as He gives. May we also give generously to others. Let's pray together.